humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 218, and this conversation is with Gary Donzig. And Gary is an Emmy-winning writer, an Emmy-winning producer, actor, screenwriter, and cancer survivor. His cancer story is totally bonkers. It's like completely bonkers. We This is a very long episode, and we talked about so many things. I'm just going to go over a little bit of stuff, okay? Uh, cancer misdiagnosis, death, the AIDS crisis, acting, writing, mysticism, religion, true love, gratitude, uh, sins of omission, love of animals, grief, uh, Shirley MacLaine. There's so many stories. It's, it was really a delight. And he hung in there and uh, answered all my questions, which was wonderful. We talked about books and poetry. It's a lovely, lovely, for me, at least, a lovely conversation. I think I wore him out by the end. I called this episode Sins of Omission because of it was something that Gary talks about on, on this episode. But it's a multi-layered statement. And as you hear all the different things we talk about, I think you'll hear other places where that fits. And by the time I got to the end, I was like, well, that's that's the perfect title. Uh, I'm going to really quickly go through social media, Hey Human podcast on Facebook and Instagram, my personal social media, Susan Ruthism, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. You can reach me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. On heyhumanpodcast.com, you'll find the links page. Every episode gets its own section of links, books, movies, articles, whatever we're talking about, my guests and I are talking about, I, I try and curate that links page to fit the conversation. So definitely check that out. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Extraordinarily helpful, and I appreciate it greatly. Take the time to, to go and, and say what you think of the show. Um, that it's It would be really great. Uh, you can do that on iTunes and actually anywhere that you listen to your podcast. I think all the platforms at this point have a review, uh, a, a podcast review process. If you want to know more about what I do besides the podcast, check out SusanRuth.com, S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H.com. And uh, you can also sign up for my mailing list there if you are interested in that. Okay, uh, I think I went through that the fastest I have ever gone through it. <laughs> and so we can get right into this episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, stay safe, be well, be kind. And uh, here we go. Gary Donzing, do I pronounce your name correctly? It's Donzing, right? Like dancing, only Donzing? It's uh, Donzig. Donzig. It's spelled, it's spelled with a T, but the T is kind of silent. But, you know, there's no history of the family's name anywhere on the planet. So th- we have no knowing how my grandfather got it. Is your and line the only line that is the Donzing? Um, I think on the end of the Donzig line, uh, there are there are names that are spelled in a similar fashion, but, but they're they're not spelled exactly like ours. And um, yeah, we've never been out. My grandfather came over from Russia in the early 1900s. We don't know where he came in, and we don't know how he got the name, but we're pretty sure it was not his name. Well, Gary Donzig, welcome to Hey Human. We froze. Do we freeze? We 
Yeah, we did free. You're frozen. Am I frozen? Am I still? I'm moving. Am I moving? You're moving, but scattered. It's uh, that time of day. I feel when, uh, when, unfortunately, everyone is on the Zoom. Um, why don't I Facetime you? Yeah. I think we're all good. A human. Well. How do you do? <laughs> today i have all that other stuff i can just weave it all together it's like they'll never even notice that there was a really wow that's amazing well you're you're far more tech savvy than i am well it's been a a a baptism by fire as they say you are in new mexico i am in santa fe i I am technically in the village of tesuke which is just uh, 10 minutes outside of the heart of santa fe in the tesuke valley it sounds beautiful. Anything that has the word valley attached to it just makes it yes. sound like it's lovely. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I Technically, we are all living on Native American land here. And in fact, the Native Americans own the water. We all have wells out here. But um, a lawsuit was filed 60 years ago uh, questioning who owned the water. And last year it was settled. The Native Americans own the water and we are borrowing it. Well, I mean, that sounds legit. It's legit. I, one can't argue with everything we've done to them. Yeah. At least they own the water, even if I'm living on their land. Yeah, they got there first, I think, is the... Yeah. yeah. For sure. Um, where did you grow up? Where did I grow up? I was born in Brooklyn. Um uh, lived there till I was five or six, then moved to Merrick, Long Island, the south shore of Long Island, and then at 13, moved to East Brunswick, New Jersey, and then at 17, went to college in D.C. at American University, then a year of graduate work at NYU, and uh, I left that to become an actor. What did you study uh, in New York? Where? What? No, what? What did you study? What, at NYU, I was studying theater. Mm-hmm. It was, they had just started the, the theater program, the professional theater program at NYU the year before. And so I was the second class. But after one year, um, I ran into an actress named Jane Alexander. Um, she was a big star at the time on Broadway. She was doing The Great White Hope. And when I was a senior in college, I had been hired to do something for Voice of America with all the actors from Arena Stage. Uh, we were doing Our Wilderness, Eugene O'Neill's Our Wilderness. And um, I was playing Richard. She was playing Muriel. Um, and... Um, I ran into her on this bus in New York and she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm in graduate school. And she said, really? Why? And I said, because um, I I want to learn more about acting. She said, Gary, you should be in the regional theaters doing all the great young men roles. She said, unless you want to be a teacher, don't go to graduate school. You want to be an actor. You should be acting. So on her advice, I quit acting. I, I mean, I quit graduate school. I, I got an agent instantly, and I almost immediately got an acting job and worked as an actor for the next 20 years until I became a writer. You have done some pretty 
cool shows. Logan's Run uh, as Logan's an actor. Logan's Run. That's so cool. Laverne and Shirley, I, uh, The Waltons, Chico and the yeah, Man. Some good stuff. Yes, it, I mostly did sitcoms. I, w- I was known for my comedic abilities. I, the rare, the rare dramatic piece, but. Um, very, very few, because in those days, back in the 1970s and 80s, if you did comedy, they saw you for comedy. If you did drama, they saw you for drama. It was very hard to move back and forth between the two of them, if you were an unknown actor. And and um, I happened to be uh, decent at the comedy, and that's what I did. Did you do a lot of theater as well along the way? <laughs> Yeah, I um, when I lived in L.A., uh, well, when I lived on the East Coast, I worked at the Arena Stage, Hartford Stage, the Cincinnati Playhouse, the Barta Theater. Um, oh, God, there was a list of them. Then I moved to California, and I wound up doing eight or nine shows at the Mark Taper Forum. I did a show at the Amundsen. I did... Uh, I think nine shows at the Old Globe in San Diego, and then I did South Coast Rep, Seattle Rep. So I was doing great roles in all those theaters, and I was uh, doing um, television in between. But I was working for the most part, you know, consistently as an actor in the theater. And then I'd get a pilot every once in a while, like Logan's Run, I was on the pilot. Um, And... uh, but those, you know, those were not supporting me. It was the, the theater was actually supporting me. Had you known from a young boy that you wanted to do this? Um, I think I was acting from the time I was about two. Um, uh, yes, my, my parents, oh, well, this will show you where some of the neuroses come from. At a, at a very early age, I was acting. And, and in school, I started acting in first or second grade. I think in, in first grade or second, I can't remember now, I played Mr. Subtraction in the school play. And um, my parents used to say when I would get emotional, which I did very frequently, um, I would cry. I, I cried very easily. Acting teachers loved me. But my parents used to always say when I would get angry or when I would start crying. And if I got angry, I would always start crying. They used to say, is this act one, scene two? Is this act scene two, three? Uh, is it act two, scene three? And, and um, you know, it's quite a way to... Um, diminish your child's feelings (laughs) yeah for sure are you an only child do you have siblings no i have an older sister four years older she's uh she's an astonishing woman she's quite brilliant and um uh yes yeah very complicated family extremely complicated family but i think a lot of us come from complicated families don't you i do think that yeah it yeah keeps the world on its toes i suppose it it keeps the world on its toes it's it makes for interesting lives for what you have to survive and i think the more complicated the family the more difficult the family the more pain you may experience in your youth the more likely you're going to become a comedy writer <laughs> Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that yeah. the, the best comics have the darkest back backstory. Yeah, we used to say if you want to 
identify who a, who the comedy writer is when you walk into a restaurant in L.A. He's the one sitting alone in the corner with that dark look on his face. <laughs> Were you a morose child besides the crying? Um, I, no, you know, I always had, I think, a positive survival instinct. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was a morose child, but I grew up in a family where both parents, I believe, were severely depressed. A sister who was very depressed. Um, I thought that that was how people just were. So I think I went into acting partly because I needed the escape and I wanted to be somebody other than me. And it was much more comfortable for me to be on stage playing a role than it was for me to be in life being myself. But I survived it all. But my life wasn't nearly as difficult, I could say, as any number of my friends who really suffered um, abuse in many ways, physical abuse. I, I always say there were there were. I'm sure there were more, but I used to separate it into sins of commission and sins of omission. My my significant other was um, abused physically and sexually as a kid, and I said things were done to him. They were sins of commission. Mine's were, mine were sins of omission because my sister required so much focus in her childhood because she had some physical issues I was ignored and um, so I thought of those as sins of omission I just didn't exist um, after my parents died my sister and I were talking and I said to my sister well do you remember when we were seven when I was seven and you were 11 and we did this and she said no and I said well do you remember when I was about nine and you were uh, 13 and we did this and she said no and then she said you know I have no memories of you as a child and I said oh wow I didn't exist in the house and because I was so trying to be such a perfect child that's a lot of pressure um it was but once again it's what it's what makes us who we are I mean the I was a hypersensitive child. When when other kids were holding up the magnifying glass to burn the ants on the ground, uh, I was either hysterical or trying to stop them. Um, I think, I think, um, yeah, I just think that cre you know all that stuff creates who you are. That's why I'm vegan. I think I became vegan at the age of 29. Oh, I gave early. up meat, yeah. fowl, and fish. That was in 19, 1975. And then I, sorry, I became vegetarian in 1975. I gave up meat, fowl, and fish uh, as a result of the cruelty. When I, I read a book and I said, I can't do this anymore. Um, and then in 1988, I gave up cheese, milk, eggs um, because of... I had been deluding myself into thinking there was no pain, you know, with the uh, production of eggs and with the what, you know, what they have to do to get the milk out of the cows. But that's because I was a city kid. I didn't know you had to get a cow pregnant in order to have her produce milk. 
never occurred to me, of course. I just thought cows produced milk all the time. I'd never been on a farm. And so when I found out what they did with the calves, well, that was it for me. There went the cheese, the milk. There went the pizza, which was incredibly hard to give up, and the haagen And that was in the dark ages of veganism. Now we have, you know, thousands of products, you know, that, that either duplicate meat, duplicate cheese, duplicate eggs, or, or are delicious in their own right. They've come a long way just in the last two years. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The, the vegan cheeses now are, are really incredibly surprising. The vegan meats. I mean, the Beyond Meat, the Impossible Burger. Yeah, I like the Beyond Meat, and you turned me on to look for some egg substitute on one of our... Uh, our just cards. Egg. Yeah, and uh, the Just Egg is really, really good. Yeah, surprising. Yeah. That's, I, mean, I, I became a relatively good vegan cook along the way, and um, with the Just Egg now, I can make a frittata using caramelized onions and garlic and broccoli rab and tomatoes, and you pour the just egg on top after you've done all that and stick it in the oven. You come out with an incredible frittata. Yeah, you're making me hungry. <laughs> when Let's go back to uh, your beginnings, your humble beginnings. When, yes. as an actor, were you jotting down notes along the way thinking, I want to write someday? Or did that come as an epiphany later on? Um, you know, it didn't come as an epiphany. Um, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, it's one goes back in time trying to reconstruct the story. Um, I got interested in various religions. I was brought up Jewish. I didn't really have an affinity for Judaism. When I was, I'd say, you know, nine years old, um, the little girl who lived next door to us on Long Island a uh, girl named Mary Faw. We used to sit on the back steps of her um, house, and I would tell her what I was learning in Sunday school or Hebrew school about uh, the Jewish God who smote the Egyptians and uh, threw hail at them and smothered them in toads and gave them boils. And she'd tell me about her God who healed, she was Catholic, who healed the sick and made blind people see and and cured people of everything and dead people got up and walked. I should have known that I was gay at that point because that appealed to me so much more than the boils and the toads. Um, and um, so along the way, I, I explored, when I got into college, I started exploring other religions and went through a lot of the Christian religions, um, then started exploring um, Buddhism, Hinduism. Uh, at one point in my life, uh, an actress friend who was involved with Baba Muktananda um, introduced me to Siddha Yoga, which I did for a number of years, and his meditations. I then was also into the New Thought philosophies, um, Theosophical Society, H.P. Blavatsky, Annie Besant. I read all those books, 23 books, I think, by Alice Bailey. Um, Explain what that is for people that are listening, because I don't know that they know about that. I don't know that a lot of people know about it. Oh, well, Theosophical Society was an organization started by H.P. 
P. Blavatsky, who was a Russian who immigrated to um, England and then was in America as well. She formed this organization in 1875 along with a group of other people, um, Leadbeater. Uh, I, I don't remember any, any of their first names anymore. I think a guy named Quimby. Um, Annie Besant was in the organization, Alice Bailey. Um, they brought the Eastern religions to the West. And they, um, they found a young man named Krishnamurti when he was, you know, uh, I think in single digits, um, late 1800s, either 1880s or 1890s. They were preparing him to accept the Christ spirit and become the new avatar for the 21st 20th, 21st century. Um, according to theosophy, um, every 2,000 to 2,500 years, you you receive a new avatar, and it was Jesus 2,000 years ago, so according to them, we were due for a new avatar. Therefore, they were preparing Krishnamurti. He became incredibly well-known. He had a huge following. Um at a certain point in his life, I think it was in his 30s, he said, I don't want this, threw it all over, and just went off on his own and became a lecturer. And uh, he actually was in Ojai, California, at the end of his life. The Ojai, the uh, Krishnamurti Foundation is in Ojai. So I got into the, the Theosophical Society, um, which was interesting. I then moved after Theosophical. Um, I was into City Yoga with Baba Moktananda. Then then I happened into um, Science of Mind, the Ernest, Ernest Holmes philosophy. Uh, a good friend of mine was a, uh, is an actor named Victor Garber, and I met him at the Old Globe in San Diego in 1982. And um, I used to get colds and flus and everything, and he said to me, you don't think correctly. He said, you have to come to Science of Mind with me. And we went to a Science of Mind lecture. And I thought, well, this is interesting. So when I got back to L.A., I signed up for the class. It's not Scientology, by the way. A whole other thing. Um, it's a, Basically, it was an offshoot of Christian science. Uh, but you could go to doctors. Doctors are part of, of uh, God's plan. Um, and I did Science of Mind for a number of years and found it very helpful. I studied uh, their, what they call treatment work. And then um, well, really I happened I to just, part... Before you go on, the treatment work, it, uh, when you say Science of the Mind, it makes me think of, you know, the Bill Moyers uh, healing in the mind. And is that sort of the yeah. tenet that your brain is capable of doing whatever the body needs? or Science of Mind would say that when people pray... They are beseeching God for something. They are asking God for something. They are lacking in something and therefore need it and say, Dear God, please uh, help me. I, I, you know, I need a car. I, I'm, I'm at my wit's end. I need money. I'm, you know, please help me. I'm desperately sick. Science of mind would say implicit within your being, if you are one, with this higher consciousness. You are one with God. Therefore, your natural state is perfect health, perfect being, abundance on every level. So 
So when you do treatment work, you don't ask for anything. You acknowledge your oneness with the wholeness that is the consciousness, whether you call it God, whether you call it the eternal consciousness. Science of Mind uses the word God all the time. And um, many of the teachings of Jesus and Buddha and all those are, are taught in Science of Mind. Um, but you are acknowledging your oneness, and in so doing, you are accepting your wholeness on every level. The temple of so God within. Yes, yes. Um, and I did, I did that. I still do that work sometimes. Um, but then I, I tripped upon the Course in Miracles, which was a whole other thing, which was um, uh, I came upon that quite by accident. I saw it on a friend's bookshelf, and I said to her, wow, what is this Course in Miracles? And she said, oh, take it. I tried to read it. I couldn't understand it. Three books, uh, a textbook, a workbook, a lesson a day for 365 days, and a manual for teachers. But it's, since it's a home study course, an individual study course, the teacher is the student. The student is the teacher. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I began uh, reading the book, and I thought, what the hell is this? And I couldn't figure it out. Put it back on the shelf. A couple of years later... I'm at an actress named Dina Dietrich's house. She happened to be somebody who was doing The Course in Miracles. And I said, oh, I tried to do that. I just couldn't understand it. She said, oh, here, take this book. It's an explanation of where The Course in Miracles came from. So I took the book, short book, 150 pages, and brought it home and put it on my bookshelf. And one day I had a cold and I was lying there and I looked at the bookshelf and I thought, wow, I should read that book. Picked it up, couldn't put it down. And when I finished the book, I thought, I have to do this Course in Miracles. So I started doing it. I started doing the lessons, one a day. The textbook was very complicated for me. So I said, okay, my goal is two pages a day, just two pages. I will finish it within 10 months. 622 pages it will take me 10 months to read it and i thought if i don't understand it i will read the same lessons or the same two pages that night if i still don't understand it i'll read them the next day but invariably the next day i always moved on to the next two pages and at the end of it i had done the workbook at one year, I had done the workbook and I had read the whole textbook, read the teacher's manual, and then I read the um, lessons again. I read, I did them for a second year. You didn't have to, but I decided I wanted to do it. Then I stumbled on Marianne Williamson, who was a woman who at the time was lecturing in Los Angeles, and went to her lectures and um, went for a whole year. And I thought that she was quite astonishing. She really, she ran for president last year. Um, and at the end of the year of listening to her lectures, I dropped her a note and I said, you don't know me, I've been coming to your lectures for a year. Would you like to have dinner at my house? And she said, yes. She came to the house for dinner. We struck up a friendship. Um, interesting, complicated woman once again, like many of us. Um, and so now 
I have come to a place in my life where I use some of many of these philosophies slash religions, but my entire belief system has altered over the last, I don't know, five or more years. Um, I used to believe in reincarnation. I used to believe in karma. I struggle now. I don't believe in them anymore. I I don't know what I believe. Um, I don't call myself an atheist. I know an agnostic is probably just an uncommitted atheist. Um, but I, 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 I'm still searching. I'm, I'm trying to meditate again. I've, I have always found meditation incredibly difficult, very frustrating. Um, but over the years, I've seen too much brutality, too much ugliness, too much cruelty. Um, I've seen what I would consider, this is personal, what I would consider people who I think of as not particularly good people succeed in major ways, get away with huge crimes. Um, I read a book called Operation Paperclip. Yeah, oh boy. <laughs> yes, it, yeah. It's, it, it certainly turns one's head around about the end of World War II and how many Nazis we brought into our country to run our programs, doctors who had committed heinous crimes, Werner von Braun, who should have been um, uh, tried for war crimes. Instead, we made him the head of our our um, rocket program, our yeah. outer space program, yeah. in order to to be able to fight the Russians. Mm -hmm. We needed to get him before the Russians got him. We erased his history. We gave him a new history. Instead of being a Nazi, we made him an anti-Nazi. And, and he lived to a ripe old age, won all sorts of awards, accolades in this country. And this was a man who should have been tried for war crimes. And it's hard for me to accept that oh, well, in your next life, you will come back in some horrendous situation and you will learn the lesson that you didn't learn in this lifetime. And my answer is no, no, that's not good enough for me. If you don't learn the lesson in this lifetime, the consciousness that was in this body gets away with something you know, maybe my thinking is limited. Maybe I'm not looking on a grander scale, but I will not accept that you can live to the age of 98 having brutalized hundreds, thousands of people in a concentration camp, been brought to America, um, have a family, children, grandchildren, you know, be highly respected and never in this lifetime had to pay any price for what you did. Uh, so that leaves me in a place at this advanced age in my 70s now of once again seeking, searching. I, I don't know that there are any answers anymore. I, I love that, that story about Gertrude 
Stein and Alice Toklas. Gertrude Stein is lying on her deathbed, and Alice Toklas says to her, Gertrude, Gertrude, what is the answer? And Gertrude says, Alice, what is the question? <laughs> you know, I think there is, there is only the question for me now. I don't know that I will get any answers. And that carries with it a certain amount of sadness and a certain amount of having to come to an acceptance of what is. Um, and just, you know, the whole Eastern philosophy and the, the metaphysical philosophy and I think the current thinking of people like Andrew Weil and anybody who's involved in, in new thought and on any level is the ability to work to live in the present. You know, the future hasn't happened. I, uh, it will happen, but right now it hasn't. Yeah. Technically, um, it never uh, happens. Uh, yes, uh, I mean, the future is right now, and the future is right now. As we're speaking, it is the future, and, and it is only because it is the present. And the past is gone, nothing can be changed, but the past is actually also present because it exists within me all the time. That book I, that you told me to read that I loved. Um, freedom from the Known, Krishnamurti. Yeah, Freedom from the Known. He yes. he speaks of uh, that that having any thoughts about the path or about the past is simply your fear. It's your fear of the present that keeps you obsessed with the past, and what a waste of right. time that is because it's dead and gone. It's yes. it will never be again and. All you have is this very second. Oh, and there that one goes. Now you have this very yeah. second. Oh, there it goes. That's it. That that's all it is. Do you know T. S. Eliot's Four Quartets? Uh, is this one that you it's, memorized? Well, I'm memorizing. Um, I, I'm memorizing. Um, the, the I want to. Can I read you? I do, would love do we it. have time for this? We it's have just all the about, time in the world. There is no. It's t it's ten lines. I'm memorizing it, but I'm going to get okay. the book. It's, it's right here. I keep it on me all the time. Um, this is the first quartet. Uh, it's called Burnt Norton. It was a house that he and this woman used to go to when they were children, and he returned to it. He wrote this one in the early 1940s. He wrote each of the quartets um, over, I think it was from 1940 to 1943 or 44, and then put them all together in one piece called the Four Quartets. But there are four individual poems. So this to me is incredible. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take towards the door we never opened into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind, but to what purpose? 
disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves. I do not know. That's just the opening little passage. It goes on to to say incredible things. Um, I've carried this book with me since 1971 when somebody gave it to me as a gift, and I read it all the time. Um, There it is. I mean, he's talking about time. It's all, it's all the present. That's all there is. And why am I here? To what purpose? I disturb the dust on a bowl of rose leaves. It's like um, frost. Nothing gold can stay, right? I love frost. I've memorized birches and mending wall. Of course, who doesn't memorize, if you love poetry, who doesn't memorize the road not taken? Um, I really um, like Blake as well, too. I like uh, Blake was so deeply entrenched in his under trying to understand uh theology and the nature mm-hmm. of man and i love yes. that stuff and um i memorize a lot of edna saint vincent Millay. oh yeah you don't hear much of uh edna I no book, so you know when she became i i read this once that she was she was um a poet who became very very popular And when she became popular, she diminished in the eyes of the intelligentsia because she was too accessible to the masses. And therefore, she was no longer one of the great poets. But um, I think she's now considered one of the great poets. I may be wrong. I love her. And to me, that's what matters. So I memorize a lot of her sonnets because those sonnets touch upon everything. And... There's, there's not a case where when a friend is going through something, they all know that I'm big into poetry. <laughs> so I'm always reciting po- po- poems to people. And when a friend is going through something, I'll say, oh, you, ha- you have to hear this. Edna St. Vincent Millay is, is talking about exactly what you're going through. And I'll recite the poetry and then the two of us will cry because it just works it's exactly it's she's great for crying what poem would you like read at your memorial do you have one that you feel is the one true poem for you oh you know i I can't say that there's there's one true true poem i i love um I, i love Time does not bring relief. You all who told you all who told me time would ease me up. You all have you all have lied. Who told me time would ease me of my pain? Um, th- that's a that's an incredible poem. Um, there were so many of them. Yeah. Um, Interesting. That one is time as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I think I think I'm. A, it's interesting because I, I've also been obsessed with time travel. Um, as a kid, I was very much into into science fiction, and um, my mother told me this is this is my Woody Allen story. When I was a, a kid, I, I didn't remember this until my mother told me. To be honest with you, um, she said, "Oh, we used to come into your bedroom." when you were probably around eight or 10 years old, because um, we were living on Long Island at the time. And she said, we come into your bedroom and you had gone to bed. We had put you to bed, you know, hours earlier and we'd be going to bed and we'd just check on you and you'd be sitting up and we'd say, what's going on? And you'd say, well, I, I don't understand. I, I got my mind out 
beyond uh, the Earth and beyond Mars and all the way beyond beyond Pluto. And how can there be no end to the universe? How can there, how can there not be an end? And she said, I used to say to you, you're not going to solve that tonight. Go to sleep. Wow. Yes, I, I was obsessed with... That's why this whole concept of, of um, other universes, you know, existing uh, parallel universes. So I'm all about that, personally. Yeah. It would explain where's why it? we're all so tired. <laughs> but where does it end? It doesn't. You know? And where does it begin? It doesn't. That's Well, ah, okay. Then, then here we go. This is in the end of the four quartets. This is what it says. What we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. And then he says in the next section, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Mm, I love that. Does it get any better than that? It's beautiful. It reminds me, somebody once said to me offhandedly that everyone thinks spring is when things begin, but that that's wrong, that winter is when things really begin. Mm. But nobody gives winter the credit. And I often Uh, think about it. Are you afraid of death? Um, Especially given um, that you say you don't believe in reincarnation anymore. Right. Um, I I am a little concerned, shall we say, about the process of dying. Um, I I can't say that I'm afraid of death. I've been around death an enormous amount um, between my friends who died in their 30s, 40s, 50s, many of them from AIDS, some from cancers, some from heart attacks, um, and all the animals I've had who I've been with when they've died, that um, the experience that I think I have had from the first death I ever was at, which was in 1985, a very close friend passed, and his was a very difficult death. He went through the, the... struggled breathing and it was really hard for the first death it was incredibly hard to be in that room um but every death from that point on including that one there you're frozen are you still there i'm here okay your image just froze on the screen um i'm enwrapped sure <laughs> uh, um every death when the, the moment the last breath is taken, whether it's an animal who I'm holding in my arms or whether it's a person who I'm either, you know, holding their hand or, or maybe not, um, I, there's that sense that whatever life was leaves the body. Now, I, I can't say that it's a soul. I can't say that I, I have never seen anything leave the body. I have friends who have said, oh, I saw the soul depart the body. I've never had been fortunate enough to have that experience. But the thing that is lying on the bed after the last breath is taken, the lifeless thing is like a slab of meat 
And whatever exited the body, whether it is just the molecular energy that existed within the body, but the animating force, that animating force is gone. Mm. I don't know what that animating force is, but um, I've always, every single time I've had that experience that something was gone. So I'm not afraid of death. Um, the, I've been saying recently, my, my, the dog, my last dog died last year, this dog that I worship. I love this dog. He was so incredibly important to me and probably the healthiest relationship I've ever had. Um, I've said that I, for the first time in many, many years, want there to be an afterlife because I want to see my animals again. I'm not sure that I want to see a lot of people, (laughs) but I, I definitely want to see my animals again. Um, You know, if somebody were to say to me, what is the one thing you think you would miss after you die? And I would have to say it's the love of a dog. Um, It's perfect love. It is yes, it's it's different than than anything. I and mean, I had a thirty four year relationship that was a wonderful relationship, um, complicated, um, difficult, <laughs> loving, supportive. He was generous. He was incredibly uh, angry. He was wonderful and kind and thoughtful and difficult and obstreperous and yes and I wouldn't have traded it for anything it was you know the the, the great love of my life in, in human form um, and I have had several great loves of my life in animal form <laughs> so no I can't are you afraid of death I'm not I'm not oh you've died you've had the experience I have twice yeah yeah so, and I, it's not that I want to go rushing out the door or anything either. I, I, I would be irritated because I have things to do. And I've contemplated my own mortality, uh, sometimes in very negative space. But that being said, uh, I think when it is time, I, be- I personally do believe in reincarnation. I, partially because of what I've seen when I flatlined... And, and partially from all this, all these different texts I've read about it. Right. I know. I, I read those books as well. Yeah. And um, there is now a, I believe, from what I've read, a scientific explanation that the brain, there is brain activity right. for more than a few minutes after you die that could account depending upon how long one is dead for there were experiments too in the 1600s when they took uh, prisoners for execution they uh they would make uh, deals with the people being executed when we behead you if you are if you understand what's happening right now blink when your head is removed from your body and (laughs) they got a lot of blinks really Mm mm-hmm I hadn't heard that. 
I'll send you. I'll send you some of the literature. It's it's very it's uh, macabre, but quite interesting. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, we can't do those experiences nowadays, can we? So we'll never know. No, they say that there's a DMT-like substance that is released when we die. But I'll tell you, my experience was so concrete and matter of fact, and slightly banal, that if there was some epic release of chemical happening in those moments i'm a little disappointed in my ability to <laughs> paint a cooler picture <laughs> it was so basic and wow. i was aware of everything going on around me to the point where i could tell them after the fact what people said right. and did that 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 um Yes, that has been in all those books. Life was it life after life or many mansions? Uh, well, uh, Doctor Newton, uh, Michael Newton wrote uh, a Journey of Souls, Life Between Lives, uh, and then there's many. Ma- what is it? Many, many masters. Many. What is that one? Yes. Uh, yeah, many lives, one. many masters. Right. Yeah, but there's been so many as well. I had, I've had a few. I've had a few, what I would have to say, are um, experiences that I cannot explain. Um, And so it does make me question. Um, Yeah, it makes me question um, whether there is something. But because (laughs) I'm somebody who always wants proof, Mm. I always look for the most logical explanation. Um, it's it's hard for me not to want somebody to come back and I, I get that completely. I was directly raised, have the conversation with me. Sure, I was raised by a scientist, so my brain starts there, and you know, looking for the untruth before the truth of a matter right. uh, but, but you, I you can't had... deny my own experience it, it was mine granted but right. yeah and I never right. and I never expect anyone to believe anything than what their experience has brought them because right. that would be a, a, a foolish expectation the, the, I, the this one experience that I had um, I, I went through an episode with cancer and I was in treatment. Um, yes, even even vegans who have been vegan for 30, 40 years uh, still can get cancer. Um, many people said to me, how did you get cancer? You've been a vegan for so many years. And I said, you know, genetics. And you had a rare um, cancer, correct? It was, a, it was a fairly rare cancer, yes, and misdiagnosed, and I did diag- re-diagnose myself. I would love for you to tell that story, too, um, after you tell what you're about to say, because I think it's fascinating. Um, the experience that I had, well, uh, le- uh, let me tell that story first, because th- then this will follow. Um, I went for a yearly physical in 2007 here in Santa Fe, um, and the doctor... Um, did blood work and when the blood work came back i looked at it and i said to him um my white blood cell count is elevated and he said yeah it's not not that much you probably have an infection somewhere i said you know i know my body really well i i don't think i have an infection and and he said gary it's not that elevated don't be concerned about it i said but you didn't do a differential 
And the differential is where they break the white blood cell count down into its major components, the lymphocytes, the neutrophils, the um, um, monos, monocytes, monophils. Uh, anyway, there are five, the basophils, um, and the one you see on TV all the time, uh, eosinophils, which are your allergy ones. Um, and I said, you didn't do that. He said, oh, well, I don't usually do it unless I see a problem. Um, and I said, so you don't want to do it? And he said, no, uh, you don't need it. And so I got on a plane the next day and went to L.A. and went to my doctor in L.A. And he did the blood work and he did the differential. And sure enough, my neutrophils and my lymphocyte were not in the correct order. And... Um, and so he said, I think you should go to see this oncologist, hematologist. And I said, I have cancer, don't I? And he said, let's not jump to any conclusions. I said, do I have leukemia? And he said, go to her. I went to her. Um, she did all the blood workup. Um, when I saw her, um, she said to me, she was facing the computer typing, actually, wasn't even looking at me. And she said, you have chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And um, I went, oh, really? And I put my face in front of, literally got up and moved my face in front of her screen and said, um, do I panic now? And she said, oh, no, 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 you have a very slow growing form. Um, I've looked at your blood work for the last 20 years. Nothing to be concerned about. It probably won't affect you for 20 years. So find a doctor in Santa Fe. Um, come back to me, whatever you want. You know, six months or a year, have more blood work done. Came back to Santa Fe, found a doctor. He did blood work. He said, yes, you have chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Um, I then started to do research online and um, came upon a podcast from a gentleman who was interviewing a doctor named Michael Keating at MD Anderson. And they were saying, don't just sit and do nothing. Learn everything you can about the illness. Um, and so I started to really do a lot of research. And... I happened to be talking to a neighbor and she said to me, oh, I'm going for some blood work because I have chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And I said, oh, my God, I, I was just diagnosed with that. And she said, um, well, I've had it for 10 years and it hasn't affected me at all. And I said, that's amazing. She said, let me give you a book to read. So she gave me this really big book about chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Somewhere in the middle of the book, there was a chapter on other illnesses, one of which was in the similar family. And, and um, one of them was mantle cell lymphoma. And then there were three lines about this thing called splenic lymphoma with villous lymphocytes. Like 1% of people with lymphomas or leukemias get this. Um, I started looking at the CD numbers that were listed, cluster of differentiation numbers, which I had been reading about. And um, I noticed that there was one number that looked similar. It looked slightly, the, the, the group of numbers looked slightly more similar to my numbers than they did to chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So I called the doctor in LA and I said to her, you know, I don't think I have leukemia. I think I have this thing called 
splenic lymphoma with villous lymphocytes. And she said, Gary, you're, you're not a doctor. Don't do all the reading. And if my technician, who was the best technician in L.A., had, had seen he, on your slide, he would have noticed that you had splenic lymphoma. The, the, the cells, they would be very identifiable. I said, but she said, no, 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 there are no buts. Don't worry about this. Stop reading. Stop doing anything. So I continued reading. That was January, February, March. I called her sometime around March. April, I tripped over my cat, fell, twisted my back, got up, was feeling, and I, I thought, oh, my God, I pulled a muscle right under my rib cage. So for two weeks, I'm feeling this, and then I thought, wow, that's not a muscle. That's my spleen. So I went to the doctor here in Santa Fe. And he said, um, well, you've gone from stage zero to stage three in four months. We have to start treatment. And I called the doctor in L.A. and she said, yes, you have to start treatment. And I said, and uh, what are you going to treat me with? They said, well, the, the standard treatment is Fludara or Fludarabine. And then I think it was cyclophosphamide. I think it was SCR and Rituxan. And I said, well, if I have a 17P53 deletion, the Fludara won't work on me. And she said, how do you know about a 17P53 deletion? Which means that my 17th chromosome is missing the 53rd gene because it's gone. It's deleted. And I said, well, I've been reading. I just wanted to know what I, she said, don't read. And you should start treatment. Do it in Santa Fe if you want, but we'll we'll start treatment. We you know we'll do a, another workup and all. And I thought, you know, I have to go somewhere else. And I remembered Michael Keating, and I called my Chinese doctor in L.A. Mao Ni, and I said to him, Mao, I think I have to go to somebody else. And who do you think I should go to? And he said, Well, I think you should go to Michael Keating. And I thought, Okay, there it is. Called. MD Anderson. They couldn't get me in for three months. That's a long I time the, when you have cancer. Yes, because I had to start treatment immediately, they told me. I said to the woman, I'm going to call every day in case you get a cancellation. And I'm, I won't bother you. I'm just going to call and just ask you. It'll be a and she said, Gary, we don't usually get cancellations. I said, oh, just humor me. And at the end of two weeks, she said to me, you know, Gary, if you can be here at 8 o'clock on Monday morning, I will squeeze you in. And I got on a plane. I went to MD Anderson. After two days of testing, Michael Keating came in to me and said, you have splenic lymphoma with villous lymphocytes. And I said to him, wow. And he said, yeah, you're right. They were wrong. And I said, what are you going to treat me with? And he said, we're just going to treat you with one drug. Rituxan. It's a monoclonal antibody. And I said, I want to do it in Santa Fe. I don't want to be in the hospital here. I want to be in my own home. So I came back to Santa Fe and Santa Fe starts the treatments and I'm having a very bad reaction to the treatments. And I said to them, are you following the protocol from Houston? And uh, from MD Anderson in Houston. And they said, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, let me see it. And I saw in the protocol that there were 500 milligrams of solumedrol that were to be given before 
the, the uh, infusion. And I said, well, you're not giving me 500 milligrams of solumedrol before the, the treatment. You're waiting until I react to the drug. And I was having a severe reaction within the first hour. I said, then you're giving me, what, 125 milligrams of solumedrol? And they said, yes, because it will interfere. We think it'll interfere with the treatment. I said, no, follow MD Anderson's protocol. It, it's what we should be doing. So we did. Um, I, but be, before that happened, actually, uh, this is 12 years ago now, before I had that discussion, I was going through two weeks of treatments and I was having a hideous reaction. I was running 104 fevers. So they stopped the treatments and I was still running the fevers because they were trying to figure out, give me a rest, see what was going on. I was lying in my window seat, looking at the view of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. And the only animal I had at the time, all my animals had died except for this one animal called Cat. He was a cat who we didn't intend to keep, so we named him Cat like Audrey Hepburn did in uh, Breakfast, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Tiffany's. Yeah. yeah, but we, this is an awfully long story. No, I love I, I, it, please. I'm continue. boring myself. You, no, it's um, fascinating. And so Cat was with me during all the treatments. Cat sat between my legs. If I got up to go to the bathroom, he followed me. This cat was like, you know, uh, uh, my avatar. Um, and um, so I'm having these high fevers. And this is the experience that I was going to tell you about. So I'm telling it now in the midst of this story. Um, I said... Um, I, I, re, I was in that half-sleep state. I didn't have an out-of-body experience. I, I was just, I was aware that I was sleeping, and I knew that I wasn't fully asleep, and I knew I was partially awake. And I either heard, I didn't hear any voice outside my body. But I heard the voice inside my head very clearly say, oh, I understand. The body can be sick, but I can't be sick. And then I woke up. I totally woke up. And the thought was in my head, wow, the body can be sick, but I can't be sick. The the I of me that exists within the body, like in science of mind, the I is in a constant state of health because that's the natural state. That's home ground. The illness was in the body. And within a day, the, the fevers started to diminish. And that's when I discovered when I went back for my next uh, checkup, um, I discovered the solumedrol issue, and um, I that we then started the um, Houston protocol, and I went through the series of treatments, and then at the end of uh, 2008, I had gone through the treatments, and then we went on maintenance, which was to be two years of maintenance, one treatment every three months for two years and at the end of the first year october of of 2009 um they just 
Dr. Keating decided that I shouldn't have a second year of treatments. He said, your response has been so incredibly good. I don't want to do any more treatments because I think you're going to be fine. And interestingly enough, right after I stopped my last treatment, uh, my cat got a very serious illness and passed away. And he was fairly young. Most of my cats have lived from 16 to 21 or 22. He only lived to be 10. But he saw me through all the treatments, and then he passed away. But it was that moment on the couch, on the window seat, when I was so aware that the eye was different than the body. And I don't know what that experience was exactly. I just know that that it it was something that I couldn't explain. And the fact that very quickly after that, the fevers went away and then I could start treatment again. It's incredible. I, I think of animals as well as absorbing a lot of our pain and suffering. So maybe your cat, cat, did that as well, absorb some of the the toxin, you know, the... I, I would hate I would hate to think that I inflicted that upon him. No, I don't think um, it's an infliction. I think that they are angels in fur, you know, that, that well, they come... That to I the, can... Ex- yeah. Yeah. Did you go I, back I and talk that. to the doctors that poo-pooed you? Um, I wrote a letter to the woman in uh, L.A. I, I never heard back. Um, I stopped going to the doctor here in Santa Fe because I thought if he didn't see any problem at all with the blood work, that both of them, the, the doctor here uh, and then the doctor in L.A., they, they didn't seem to have any respect for listening to a patient. It, the, the next doctor I went to here in Santa Fe, the, the oncologist that I found here, um, he did listen to me. He was, he was quite wonderful. Now, he had never had a patient with splenic lymphoma. And the following year on his um, the medical exam, I guess you have to take every year, he said to me, wow, you're not going to believe it, but there was a question about splenic lymphoma on the test. And I got it right because of all the information you gave me. Because I loaded him down with, with whatever I could find about splenic lymphoma, so that to me, he could that read is up. Proof. On. That is proof of how we are all so intricately connected. We are absolutely one with each other. I, I, I can't deny that. There's a part of me that wants to fight that thought, um, because once again, it's like oh. Yeah, the other experiences I have have had that are semi-metaphysical when somebody died and something happened after they died. Um, um, yeah, I mean, the way I acquired Max when I adopted Max, this dog that died last year, that was a totally out-of-the-blue experience that I could not explain Um and so maybe there was something more there. So, you know, it's this ephemeral thing that just exists that all the things that we can't explain and I constantly, I don't seem to want to give in to them. You <laughs> that's know? all right. That's, I, that's, I, yeah. get, I get that. I, I but get. I, 
uh, one of my good friends and I always talk about people who don't live like this or people who have deep beliefs, religious beliefs, that there is a God, that there is an afterlife, that they're going to heaven. And and the, was it Thoreau, the unexamined life is not worth living? And my friend Tom and I always say to each other, I'm not so sure. Maybe the unexamined life is much easier. Oh, absolutely. Ignorance is surely bliss. The, <laughs> the, the more you know, the less happy you are. <laughs> yeah. For me, when you talk about, firstly, that story is incredible. And I think if if nothing else, the cautionary tale of always be listen to your gut when up against an expert, because there, there can be a hubris that comes along with the experts that they don't listen, like you said, or they think they know everything. Um, and the fact that you also kept track of the protocol, I think, is also an important note to make. Well, the, the lesson there is you if you don't have an advocate, you have to either find an advocate or you have to be your own advocate. You cannot, I, I think doctors are wonderful. You know, who doesn't love Anthony Fauci? You know, you and you look back uh, to the 1980s when Fauci was head of the CDC during AIDS, and he has given credit to the, the activists for changing the way the uh, CDC, I think he was at at the time, or maybe it was the NIH, the way that they, they you know, studied drugs and then released them. They were doing compassionate, you know, uh, trials um, because they figured, what did they have to lose? But um, I, I think doctors are amazing. They have to deal with, yeah. you know, on a daily basis, my heart goes out to them. But at the same time, you have to be careful of the doctors that have such egos yes. that they don't want to pay attention to the patient, what the patient is saying. They don't want you to have the knowledge. This one guy who, the, the original doctor here, um, he said to me, stop read, stop looking on the Internet. Stop looking. It's not good for people. And I said, no, for me, it is good. Because I like to have all the, the information that I can. I said, for people who can't deal with the information, right. it's not good. Right. So that's why friends now will call me and say, hey, I've been diagnosed with this. Would you look this up? I just don't want to read the stuff. What can you tell me about it? So I'll read everything I can about it. I'll also look up what is the best hospital, where are they doing trials in the event that it's progressed, you know, what places should you go, should you go to Hopkins, should you go to MD Anderson, should you go to Hutchings up in Seattle, which places are the the, the best ones to go to? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I as well, I think doctors are fantastic, nurses are fantastic, but I, I think that there was a huge red flag when the woman delivering the news to you about the type of cancer she thought you had didn't even have the courtesy to look at you to deliver the information. Yes. That's a yeah. big red flag. Let's, um, yeah. I'd like to touch on the, the AIDS crisis. Did you, as a gay man in America... Yeah. And your friends started getting sick. Was right. there a was there a a feeling like oh shit this is really something or did it take some time to wrap your head around? Um, I I was in a committed relationship at the time and I 
I happened to be somebody who um, wasn't, we weren't straying. Um, and um, um, it was, you know, in the beginning, nobody knew. I mean, I ran into a guy that I knew at the gym in 1982 in May, and he was going to the city of Hope um, for treatments for a disease that they didn't know what he had. But he was getting sick all the time, and he kept going back. I guess he may have had Kaposi's sarcoma at the time. Um, and um, and I went to his funeral in December. And so that was the first one for me. Now, there had been an article in the New York Times. I think it was the spring or the summer of 1981. There had been an article on, like, page 38 about, you know, this illness that had killed like five gay men in California and a few gay men in New York. But it was not something I had heard about. I wasn't, I was living in California at the time. I wasn't reading the New York times. Um, and so I missed it. Um, and one friend told me, uh, sometime quite a while later that he had been reading it on the train on the way out to fire Island. And he said, I'm going to die from this. Um, and he did, but, um, and then it began to cascade and there were no tests. The test didn't come along till 1985. They didn't know how far back you could have gotten infected. They didn't know what in the initial stages, they didn't know what was infecting you. Was it just transmitted sexually? Was it at one point there, there was something that people were sniffing called poppers. And there was the thought that, oh, people may, are they getting it from poppers? I mean, it was all over the place. I went, I, I was going to some doctor who said, well, don't go into any swimming pools. You might be able to get it in a swimming pool. And, you know, there was panic and, and, um, uh, and then slowly, you know, over time, when they still didn't know what to do and people were dying very quickly in those days, um, it just was cascading and you didn't know whether you had it. So you, I mean, we just became celibate because we didn't know whether we could, if one of us had something or could give it to the other one. So that was it. It was... Mm. The answer was celibacy for us for a number of years. Um, and, you know, it was just one funeral after another one, you know, three hospital visits a day. My, my writing partner used to say, I think Russ may have, well, Russ Woody, who's, you know, and I know is a wonderful guy. Russ had said, I used to go to the hospital in the morning on the way to work. This is after I had become a writer. And I'd visit with somebody, and I'd come to work, and and I'd cry for 15 minutes, and then Stephen and I would write comedy. And then I'd go at lunchtime to another hospital and visit somebody, come back, cry, and write comedy. And uh, after leaving work, I'd go to dinner. Uh, I mean, I'd go to a hospital, see somebody else, then go home and cry and have dinner. And that went on for years. And then, you know, then there were the people who didn't have AIDS. You know, a friend who died of a brain tumor, a friend who died of emphysema, a friend who had a heart attack, a, a woman who had a ovarian cancer. Um, she was 50 years old, you know. So, but 
but it was in the 80s, the AIDS crisis, when that was going on. That was just an endless cycle of, of death. And living with the awareness that you didn't know whether you were the next one. And, um, and also just the sheer pain of one person after another leaving. Yeah. But it was, you know, once again, um, it's part of the process. You, you look to now with, with the people dying of COVID. You know, uh, this actor in New York, I, I knew, Mark Blum, a lovely man. Um, we had worked together a number of years ago, and we were not friends. Uh, I, I knew him. I would always go to see him in a play, and we'd spend time talking after. Um, but he was 69 years old, and, you know. But then I've had friends, you know, recently pass away from heart attacks and from cancers and all sorts of things. So, so that's it. That's what you get. Death and taxes. Tell me about your discovery. Uh, have you always been a gay man, a bisexual man? Like, what was your understanding of yourself back in the day? Okay, so I would say that I have always been a gay man. But during the period of time when I was growing up, there were no gay student alliances. There were uh, there were only one or two books. I think Gore Vidal had written The City and the Pillar in the 1940s. But uh, there weren't a lot of places. There was no internet. There was nowhere to go research. And um, I got out of college. I got out of uh, college. Yeah, it was after the summer after college. I went to Nantucket. And... Um, I was uh, acting in the theater up there, and I, I met this absolutely wonderful young woman um, named Mimi, and we fell in love. I, I fell in love with her. Um, and then we moved back to New York, and then we had some issues on and off, and I was seeing another woman called uh, Althea. And, um, and then uh, Mimi and I were kind of breaking up but not quite i i was taken to a place i was an actor and i needed some employment so althea took me to this place called commercial analysts that did nighttime surveys and we were doing surveys like i'm from the um hopkins medical community and we're doing a survey on hemorrhoids yeah it was you know you're, that's what you get when you're doing those surveys. So anyway, I was working there and I, I met this man who was also working there. His name was Gary as well. And um, I fell in love and I, I fell really in love. Now, he was married at the time to a woman named Marcia. Um, but once again, it was 1968. I didn't quite know where this part of me was going to fit into my life. I, I thought I was going to marry Mimi because I loved her and we would have children. And But when I met Gary, it was a whole other feeling. It was a, a completeness, you know, oh God, the you complete me line. Um, but there was something different about it. I had had a couple of experiences in college, but nothing that really had amounted to anything so but i fell in love and we were together for 34 years now both women both mimi 
uh, who I still love deeply and who is very much a part of my life, and Gary's ex-wife, Marcia, who we both love deeply, and she was, she still is a very important part of my life. Um, uh, you know, you, you're on your way to discovering who you are. And it took... I, th I think now it may be quicker because things are so open. People, you know, a, a cousin of mine said that her 10-year-old son uh, admitted or, or came to them and said, I'm gay. And I thought, wow, you know, a 10-year-old now comes and says, I'm gay. Now, whether that will hold true, I don't know, but I have a feeling it will because I knew when I was five, when I look back, the signs were all there. The feelings were all there. I just didn't know at that time in the 60s how to put it all together. So that's how it came together for me. And Gary and I were together for 34 years and until, sadly, uh, he had an aneurysm and um, was gone before he hit the floor of the shower. Would you say that he, I mean, you can't speak for him, obviously, but after such a long time together, maybe you can, is that he was married to a woman. Did he anticipate, did he always think he was gay as well? Or I think he was in the same situation as I. He had had far more experience than I had had. He was eight years older than me. When we met, I was 22. He was 30. So he was an adult. Um, I was pretty much a child at 22. Uh, um, and so it was interesting when I, years later, as, you know, relationships evolve, they shift, things change, and you, you get things in perspective. And when I met him, I very much needed somebody to take care of me, to protect me. I, I realized years later I had never been protected as a child. I had parents who loved me in the way that they could love me, but they were deeply damaged people with lots of problems, depression issues, anger issues. Um, I have come to believe that my father was gay. Um, my mother thought he was gay. My 95-year-old aunt asked me uh, about four years ago, she died last year at 98, um, I was sitting with her and she said to me, I have a question for you. Do you think your father was gay? And I said, wow, Ethel, that, that is a question coming from you. She said, well, do you? And I said, actually, Ethel, I do. And she said, so do I. And so did your mother. And I said, yes, I, I kind of knew my mother thought that, but nothing was ever said. And I don't think my father ever experienced being gay. He had far too many issues. He, 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 um, he was a wonderful man. He was honest and upstanding and, and good in so many ways. But my parents didn't really know how to parent well. Um, and they were dealing with so many issues of their own that they, they really couldn't figure it all out. So when I met Gary, um, suddenly there was this adult male, and he was a cowboy, um, a real cowboy. I mean, he had grown up on a ranch with horses and cowboy boots and the whole thing. And, you know, I was a, a New York Jewish kid. I didn't own a pair of Levi's until I met him. He, he was stunned. He said, you, you don't own any Levi's? And I said... 
no, I, I don't wear Levi's. I was Brooks Brothers, you know, through and through. Everything I had was Brooks Brothers. Um, so, yes, it was the perfect meeting at the perfect time. And, of course, the relationship, like all relationships, did not come without its complexities because he came from a really damaged background. Um, and, um, you know, my damage was was different than his. The damages melded greatly, uh, partly because I was, um, I was a codependent, and a codependent always finds a, a person who's looking for a codependent. But over the years, I came to understand my codependency, and uh, uh, we, we established a, a pretty good, healthy relationship in, in many ways. I think there are almost always ways that relationships struggle. But, um, you know, if he hadn't passed away uh, 18 years ago now, um, this would have been our 52nd anniversary. He would have been 82. And um, we would still be together, I believe. I, I, I venture to say without a doubt we would still be together. But that was, you know, the early stuff was on the road to finding one's real self. And you have to go through whatever process you go through. Uh, I know a man who, who came out when he was 50. He was married two times. He had three children. And he, he didn't want to deal with it. And he covered it up. And a lot of it was because of his family and relationships with his father. And at 50, he finally took the jump and realized I can no longer do this and came out. You know, I, I was fortunate that I did it early and uh, had a great life. And your parents were accepting? No. Oh. No, my parents had a very, very difficult time with it. Um, once again, they were, they were good people, but they wanted it to be other. And... Um, my father, it was 1985, and uh, Gary and I went to be a friend with a friend, a close friend in Tennessee who was dying of AIDS. It was the first time I was ever with somebody who actually died. I was in the room at the time. And after he died, um, I got on a plane, went to see my parents in Florida, got off the plane, and my father said, I have cancer. And I said, we have to talk. And we, we went back to the house. Gary had gone back to California. And I said to my parents, there's something we have never said out loud, and it has to be said. You know I'm gay. I know that you know I'm gay. And you know that I know that you know that I'm gay. And I said, and we've never said the word. And you have to know that the word is okay and that... I have a very good life. I had been with Gary for, I think by that time, it was probably 18 years or something. Um, and uh, I said, you just have to know that I'm happy. I'm fine. And there was dead silence. And I, I said, so how do you feel? More silence. And then finally, my father says, we wish it could be different. And I said, well, it's not, and you just have to know that I'm happy. And we never talked about it much. Um, we had 
there were a couple of other incidents, I won't bore you with them, that came up uh, towards the end of his life. Um, but, um, yeah, that was it. But, you know, you, you get to a place where you heal yourself, your whole. I would have loved it if they could have accepted me for all of me. But they just weren't capable of that. And if your father was dealing with his own issues of yes. non-self-acceptance, you being a mirror to him was yes. likely very uncomfortable. Yes, and I'm not even sure that my father even knew what he was feeling. I'm not sure that it wasn't buried so deep that he couldn't even get in touch with it. But I have a feeling there were feelings that he had that made him uncomfortable, and he may have questioned or something. But, yes, we, we were a family that was very good at burying things very deep. You came to writing late, in yes. many people's opinions. What was... I find being in the entertainment industry, the arts, that there are always those that tell you uh, why you can't do something. And ageism, right. of course, ageism runs rampant through the industries that are the creative industries. Why did you decide that it didn't pertain to you? I was an actor from 21 to 40. Got my first writing job when I turned 40. Um, I kind of went into it blindly. And I was doing the science of mind work at the time. And I also had taken a course from a man, uh, it was a weekend course about maximizing the use of your brain, achieving your goals by making a goal tape for yourself, where you put a number of goals on it, where you trick the brain into um, uh, receiving the goals through the positive center in the brain as opposed to the pain center in the brain. And um, then you list it. You overwhelm the brain with, with at least 30 goals. And everything had to be stated in the present, just like science of mind, which always says right here and right now. Um, so I was doing all that work. Um, I... I was acting, I mean, I was earning my living as an actor, but I was approaching 40. And there was a part of me that I think was starting to panic because I was living with, a, a, you know, my partner who was, um, had been an actor, but then went back to his first love, art. Well, you know, let's face it, an actor and an artist living together. And there was... The part of me that was saying, what, what the hell are you going to do when, when you know, you're older if you haven't earned enough money to really live comfortably? And, um, you know, it was either you get a series or you, get, you become a movie star, but everybody else is kind of struggling in a way. So um, you can't live on guest star work in L.A. Um and I was doing all this metaphysical work, and it was 1986. And, oh, no, sorry, it was 1984. And I ran into a guy at the Sports Connection that I had worked with in 1982 at the Old Globe in San Diego. We weren't friends. We didn't particularly like each other's work as actors. Um, but we knew each other, and we got to talking, and 
he had just come from an audition for Hill Street Blues, and uh, he had had he had had in the past six pilots. Three of them had gone to series. He had a successful career. He was doing rather well, but he had just gone off for six lines on Hill Street Blues. Yes, sir. No, sir. Uh, I have the papers for you, sir. And apparently he read the one line, sir, I have the papers for you. And he was corrected and said, and was told to say, no, no, you read the line wrong. The sir comes at the end of the line. So he was kind of in a spin at the gym. I don't know why I'm still doing this. You know, my friends who are writers, they all tell me I should be a writer. And I said to him, you know, I've been thinking about writing too. I had only thought about writing very vaguely. I mean, when I was younger, I tried to write a couple of things, never really got off the ground, never got very far with them. And I had kind of put it to rest because as an actor, all you ever want to do is act. And um, and so um, I said to him, um, yeah, I've been thinking about writing too. Uh, maybe we should get together and, and talk about writing, maybe between acting jobs. We could actually write a script and sell it and make some money. <laughs> totally naive. And, and he said, uh, yeah, I don't think so. And uh, he walked away and continued to do his workout. Um, I left, went home, thought about it, looked in my file where I kept all the contact sheets from all the actors I'd ever worked with, every theater. I had all the way back into the 1970s. And sure enough, there was from two years before his phone number. So um, I called him and I said, why don't we get together? And he had obviously told his wife and uh, she was in the background and she must have been saying something to him because um, he, he said to me, OK, OK, let's get together. So we planned to get together the next day and he got off the phone and he always tells people, I said to my wife, I'm going to go piss away an afternoon talking about writing with Gary Donzig. And she said, well, I know you worked out at the gym today and you can't go tomorrow because you have to rest your muscles. So what have you got to lose? <laughs> and so we got together the next day. We started talking. Sounded interesting. We decided to do a home study. We were going to watch six episodes. We thought, what do we want to write, an hour show or a half hour, sitcom or drama? And we thought, well, sitcoms are 30-something pages long, double-spaced. Our dramas are 50 to 60 pages long, single-spaced. Let's go for the sitcom. And we had both done sitcoms. We had both acted in sitcoms. And, you know, we both tended to be funny. And, um, and so we watched six episodes of Cheers, six episodes of Night Court, six episodes of Family Ties. And we said, okay, which one do we want to write an episode? And I said to him, I think I have a good episode, an idea for an episode of Family Ties. And he knew Gary, he had done a pilot for um, Gary... Um, Oh, God, who was the producer of Family Ties? Gary Goldberg. He had done, uh, a, I think it was Gary Goldberg. He had done a, a pilot for him. He said, I'll be able to get the script to them. So we worked on the idea I had, 
And it really hadn't been done on television before because it had a gay character in it. And um, it took us, I don't know, nine months to write it and then rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And we finally gave it to friends and Stephen's friends who were writers. And they all said to him, wow, this is great. Do you want to meet our agent? And we said, well, no, what happens if we can't do it again? Let's write another script. So we said, what should we write? And I said, well, I know Doris Roberts. She's my neighbor. Let's write a Remington Steel because we can, we can um, uh, get it to her and it'll get done. <laughs> Once again, totally naive. So we came up with a Remington Steel episode. We wrote it. We showed it to friends. We said, okay, we'll meet agents. We met three agents. All three of them wanted us. We signed with one of them. He sent us up for our first job. And this is one of those metaphysical moments. It was like when I called Stephen at home to convince him to work with me. I could have let it go, which would have been the logical thing. But it was like, there was something deep within my brain that said, this is the moment. I had been offered at, I had done a, a, a guest star on, was it uh, One Day at a Time? Uh, Alan Raskin was directing it. And um, he, I think it was, I think that was the show. Anyway, he said to me, um, I was asking a lot of questions and he said to me, you know, you think like a director, you should follow me around and I'll, I'll mentor you. And I said, no, 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 I, I, I only want to be an actor. It's like the horse in New York with the blinders in the city. You know, you can only see this, you can't see what's out there or there. And so, um, I said to him, no, no, no I'm just an actor. And then I had a friend who wanted to start a casting office. And he said to me, why don't we go into casting together? You have such a great memory for actors' names. And I said, the blinders were on. No, 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 I only want to be an actor. And then the moment happened with Stephen. And it was like suddenly the blinders widened and something in the back of my brain said, no, pursue this. So I, I did. I pursued it. So... We, we go with this agent. They send our script over to a place called the Arthur Company. It no longer exists. Arthur Anacarico. He was doing first-run uh, episodes for the Ted Turner network of three different sitcoms. And um, this guy, Ted Bergman, who is the producer of the show, um, interviews us. And he says, you know, guys, I think I'd like you to write an episode. This is our first interview. And... And I said to him, wow, how did, you, how did you pick us? I said, there was a, a pile of scripts three feet high on the floor. And I said, so our script finally came to the top of the pile. He said, no, he said, it was weird. He said, I just pulled your script from the middle. I was tired of reading from the top down. And I just thought, I'm going to pull a script out. And, and he said, and it was the first script that I had really liked. And it came out of the middle of the pile. That's why I called you in. Wow. And I... I thought, wow, once again, I was doing all this mental work at the time. And the pieces just were falling into place. And we wound up um, going on staff for the three weeks. And I said to Stephen, he's not going to let us go. We're really good at this. 
And at the end of the three weeks, they said, we'd like to bring you on staff. Wow. And we, we stayed there for, uh, they did 103 episodes. We were there for 75 of the episodes, I think, something like that. Uh, they had already done 25. And, um, and our next step, we went, everybody was leaving from all the shows Arthur was doing, going on to network. And we were the last ones, and we went on to network, and we went to Full House, and we were only there for six episodes and left. We went to a different world and then left, and then we wound up on Murphy Brown. And that was two years after our first job, and it all took off from there. And you won Emmys on Murphy Brown for your writing. Yeah, we won two Emmys as producers and one Emmy for an episode that we wrote about um, giving money to charity. And then we were nominated the next year for an episode that we wrote about uh, Miles Silverberg thinking that he was gay. It's interesting to me that you were writing at a time when all of those topics were taboo in a lot of ways and you just didn't cover that sort of thing unless it was an after school special how did that shape you as far did you make a conscious effort like I'm going to write about this stuff or did it come naturally just over time um and I I think you were in that session with Russ when I, I I said that too often in sitcoms you you don't get to write things that are meaningful to you uh, we were fortunate on Murphy Brown and on Suddenly Susan and then a show called State of Grace, which was a single camera. Um, it was a, not a, a sitcom. Um, we got to write some episodes that meant something to us. And every time we got to write something that was meaningful to us, the response was quite amazing, whether it was a, an award whether it was, you know, just the, the, the response from the public. Um, you, you long to, even, even when you're writing a silly sitcom, you long to write something that will have some effect. And most of the time it doesn't happen. You know, so many drama shows, you do. You get to write things. Um, it, it was, and I think also we were older like when we got on Murphy, I was the oldest person on staff. Diane English was two years younger than me. Stephen was three or four years younger than me. And all the other writers were 10 to 11 years younger. So we were the older guys on staff. Now, I was 42 at the time. That, that's not exactly old. <laughs> in, in the industry, it's considered older. But, you know, my whole thing is... Why do you? Well, yes, it may it may not be easy, but don't listen. It's like I was always told, "Oh no, it's so hard to work as an actor." Well, I worked for twenty years as an actor. I just always thought, "No, there's work out there. Why shouldn't it be me?" You know. Now you have to have something to back it up. Either you have to be incredibly beautiful, and that gets you the work. You know, and then whether or not you can sustain it with your beauty is another thing. Or if you're really talented. But at the same time, I know so many people who are so talented, so gifted, and their careers didn't work out. So there is, there is a certain arbitrary nature 
or whether or not some people would like to call it karma or whether it's just good fortune, whatever it is, who wins, who doesn't, and whether the not winning takes you in another direction that winds up being more fulfilling, you know, that's a whole other thing. You know, it's, it's, I think so much of this has to do with leaving yourself open to all the possibilities and not limiting yourself in any way because you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you, you don't know who the brick is going to fall on when you're walking down the street and you don't know who's going to trip over the $10,000 bill, you know. If you can look at it like, as you were saying, the eye inside the body, if the whole world is the body and your choices are the eye, you know what I mean? There's a, there's a sense of you. I say this all the time on the show is you get to write your story. It's not anybody else's. It's yours. Yes. Yes. The, we are the author of our own story. I think it would be very interesting to sit at a, a, a dinner table with you and Shirley MacLaine because she, so, to me, sounds like the antithesis of all the things that you believe now. And you guys are friends, right? And Yes. That, that must be interesting. Well, she thinks of me as a Neanderthal because she's seen me go through any number of philosophies. And the fact that, you know, she is so connected to everything that she talks about and has such a deep belief of course in all her books and everything yeah. and the way the way she lives her life but um i would once again i would love to have that kind of faith that kind of belief you know um, but what was it bernard saint bernadette who who developed some terrible illness at the end of her life and and said you know god's grace or god's healing is not for me something like that and i often think you know there were there she was uh, a woman who lived her life in a saintly fashion uh, or was it wasn't it mother teresa who's at times questioned you know whether or not she was worthy or whether or not there yes and she had uh she had depression issues as well yeah yeah i mean i think that's probably helped her to help others because when we get out of our own heads out of our own way and and focus on loving another right you can't help but feel better (laughs) The, the one thing that i do know is that we are made up of atoms you know molecules um so are the trees and the grass and the air we breathe and the ground on which we walk differentiated in ways obviously and levels of consciousness levels of awareness but still when the end comes for us i have a thought that the molecules that depart the body with that last breath whatever the the life force is, may not carry with them the individual memory of the life that it lived, but carry with them an, uh, an unconscious experiential level of consciousness, and that the molecules from Mozart and Beethoven and Bruce Springsteen and all the greats 
um, let's say in music, that those molecules, those atoms, let's say, or the nanoparticles, you know, they, they are drawn together and then they will descend into another life form like a child who winds up at the age of three being able to play the piano brilliantly. And it's not that that is the that is specifically Beethoven reincarnated or brings Sproustine, but it is the uh, these individual atomic particles that have been glommed together and then enter this vehicle, and therefore that life force then takes off and is capable of creating without having any specific memory of a previous lifetime. That's just one of my many insane theories. I'd like to think that in our last breath that we break apart and join all of the all. And then we, like you say, recollect maybe in bits and pieces like that. It would make more sense in in my belief system of that you and I are the same. We've just manifested in a different shape for a time. Right. Something has to happen to the particles. The hardest part of it is to look at people who have chosen to to be evil or not kind or whatever and and say well if if Gary and Susan are connected I have to acknowledge that evil person over here and I are connected there is no separation and that's that's a hard thing to wrap one's ego and and self around well i think we probably all have levels of darkness in us that we are capable of in the right situation. The tests that were done in the 1950s or 60s. Yeah, the, the prison experiments and all that. Yeah. 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 And the I electrocution mean, experiments. Yes, that leads you to believe that anybody is capable and, you know, mass thinking and fear. What fear does to us and the fear of dying the fear of being killed you know what we are willing to do to survive and who survives and who doesn't so yes those are i think all of it is in us it is it is partially the damage that is done to us that leads us down one path or another and uh, part of it is maybe some arbitrary factor yeah Um, man's search for meaning that that book really yes opened me up to the idea of all of that. And why, why bad things happen to good people, mm. uh, the rabbi who wrote that book. So I think that, you know, it, there are no answers. I go back, you know, to what is the question? And that's what just keeps, that's what comes up all the time for me. What is the question? Yeah. And I am not going to get in this lifetime the answers that I want. And, you know, so I, I do hope that I get to see my dogs afterwards. I hope that for you and for and myself. My yeah. I think the answers perhaps come in the letting go. And maybe the letting go is in that last breath. And I often think that when we manifest into these bodies and such, it's not... <laughs> it's not a question of uh, learning as you go. It's a question of remembering as you right. go. And in the meantime, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in its petty pace. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. You told me a wonderful story. Uh, well, I really enjoyed it. So I would love for you to share that with my listeners. Okay. I, I will. I, I tend to go on too long. So this is difficult. No, it's, for me. It's wonderful. I will try to do this one as short as possible. Um, Gary died in the shower at our house in New Mexico. I was in, in L.A. at the time, um, but uh, he had an aneurysm or a stroke. He was gone very quickly. Um, a couple of days later, um, Shirley came to the house. I flew out, and um, Shirley came to the house, and she was walking around the house with her cape floating behind her saying, oh, yes, I feel his presence. I feel his presence. And I kept thinking, seriously, Shirley, I don't feel his presence. Why do you get to feel his presence? And she said, well, you know, you had an agreement. He would not have left unless you gave him permission to leave. And I said, seriously, Shirley, I didn't give him permission to leave. You know, I was looking forward to our 34th. Uh, we were one month away from our 34th anniversary. And I said, you know, when he was supposed to outlive me, because everybody in his family lived into their 90s and everybody in my family dies in their 70s. So what What the hell is this? So um, I went back to Los Angeles and um, I woke up one morning with a shot and realized something. Four months before he died, I had sold our house in Los Angeles and I was renting a condo um, because I had planned in the next few years to move out uh, to spend, you know, full time with him. And I, I was commuting. Um, and so and I didn't want the house any longer. So I had found this condo all on my own. Now, Gary and I had an interesting relationship because he was an artist. He had great taste. He had always found every apartment we lived in. He found the house that we bought. I just kind of was along for the ride. And and he decorated them beautifully. And I would say, you know, give my little bits and pieces. But after he moved to New Mexico and I was commuting, I realized that he had been doing the gardening before the gardener came because the gardener really didn't know how to garden. And he had been doing the house cleaning before the housekeeper came because she really didn't know how to clean the house. And it was like I was working 18 hours a day and I thought, oh my God, I don't have time for the gardening. I don't have time to, to clean at this point. And I was fortunate to be making enough money to pay for those things. And, and so I hired a new gardener. I hired a new uh, housekeeper. I did a lot of things around the house. He had been ignoring the house because he had been building the house in Abiquiu. And, and I realized so many things needed to be done. So I hired people to do everything and I oversaw it all. I was very careful about everything that was done. But then I sold the house and and moved into the condo and i sat up in bed one morning right after you know um i had rented the condo and i thought wow it's amazing i have taken care of myself by myself because i was with gary when from the time i was 22 and he was 30 and i was now 56 and he was 63 and I either said out loud or I thought, you know, if anything ever happens to Gary, 
I will be okay because I know how to take care of things now. I, I don't need him in the way I thought I needed him. I, I want to be with him, but I'm not dependent on him any longer to take care of all those things. And I felt great about that. So four months later, he dies. Shirley tells me that we had an agreement. A month later, I sit up in bed like a shot and I think, oh my God, I gave him permission when I said that I would be okay if he left. It was the weirdest thing to think, but I remember clearly having thought it. I would be okay if anything happens to him, I would be okay. And I called Shirley and I said, Shirley, I, I did give him permission. You were right. And she said, I told you so, I knew it. He wanted out, but he waited until you were okay, until he knew that you would be okay. And I said, yeah, but he, he left me with two, you know, a house that, uh, that I don't want in Abiquiu and with five animals that I have to take care of now all on my own. <laughs> and I'm working full time. And I, well, and it was complicated. But at the same time, she, whether she was right or not, I had given him permission and he did leave. So whether that is one of my inexplicable metaphysical experiences, whether there is any spiritual aspect to it, you know, disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. But yeah, that's, that's that experience. Wow, I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> Having met and loved a great love, which I think is rare, Mm -hmm. in the world and after Gary passed away did you tuck away that part of yourself or were you open to finding love again um I was in grief for I'd say several years the first year was incredibly rough um it was very complicated also because uh, it was 2002 we didn't have the rights that gay people have now so there were all sorts of complexities involving the government, involving um, some members of his family, um, even though they knew about us. Um, there were a lot of issues. Um, and um, I, I, I'd say I was grieving, really grieving for two to three years. At one point, six months after he had died, somebody said to me, oh, Gary, you're just so depressing. You're, you're depressing to be around. You have to go get some drugs. And I thought, wow, maybe I am not dealing with this well. So I went to a psychopharmacologist and I spent an hour talking to him. And, and at the end, he said to, I said to him, so what do you think? I mean, do I need drugs? He said, do you think you need drugs? And I said, no, I, I don't think I need drugs, but I, I, maybe I need a professional opinion. Maybe I'm so in the dark, I can't even see. He said, Gary. You had a 34-year relationship. You are in grief. You are in deep grief. You get up every morning. You shower. You go to work. You work, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. I was on some TV show at the time. And he said, um, 
Call me if in three to four years you're stuck in bed, if you can't get up, if you can't function. He said, no, we are over-medicated in this country. People prescribe things far too quickly. Go through grief, mourn a 34-year relationship that was filled with love and complexity, but go through it and come out the other side. And he was absolutely right. And, and then when I came out of it, I decided to leave L.A., um, move to Santa Fe, not exactly the place one comes, particularly if you're gay, to find a, a love, because um, everybody here is, you know, mostly involved when they come. And, and also, I think I felt like I had, I had done that. And even though I, I, I was good at a relationship, I understood it. I thought, you know, I have spent my life mostly as a codependent, and I don't want one more negotiation, one more compromise. I don't want one more argument. I want this time to be about me. I, I, I you know, I do, I did my, and do my charity work. I had, I am without an animal at the moment because my last animal died and it was a rough go. But, you know, I have had wonderful animals who gave me great, great affection, great love. Um, but I, I don't foresee a relationship now because I had it, I loved it. And no, no, the, this, these end years of my life, however many they may be, short or long, um, I, I want to be about self-discovery and about giving in a different way than giving in a one-on-one -on -one relationship. That's lovely. It's well, uh, it's very rare, I think, that, that humans get to the point where they understand themselves deeply enough to be able to make those kind of decisions. What, what I think I have found so fulfilling about it um, is that I was an incredibly gregarious person. Um, I was really out there in the world, and we entertained. We had people to dinner three nights a week. I was giving dinner parties, cooking, because I'm a really pretty good vegan cook. Um, I, I say that, you know, humbly. I, I have come to this wonderful period in my life where I am so comfortable alone, my only concern is I keep on reading. It's not healthy to be alone. You live longer if you are in a relationship. Um, but I have come to feel so good being alone. And I know a lot of my friends have been uh, stressed during this period of isolation. And it, it has been absolutely wonderful for me because I don't even have to make up an excuse why I don't feel like going to dinner I just can say, oh, I can't go to dinner. I have to stay home and isolate. Yeah, you know, so much time for for looking inward, for memorizing more poetry, for reading the great books, for watching some incredible shows, and, and for just finding that place of peace and contentment. Um, that's what I want most now. And, you know, we're, we're bombarded by the news, which I, I watch. Uh, I try to watch less of, but I watch too much. But we're bombarded by 
as we have always been, it seems it seems heightened now because of the politics of of the current situation. But um, the darkness in the world, the cruelty, the brutality, the the anger, the hatred, the ugliness—it's a constant. And the only way I think to change things is is for me to find a really deep level of peace and contentment within my own self and then do the work that I can do whatever kind of charity work or my you know even the financial support of charities that I am fortunate enough to be able to to give um I think that's all important because it all comes down to that ephemeral thing that we always have heard from all the mystics about finding that place within ourselves. And, you know, I, I've been trying to find it since I was 21 or even younger, possibly, through all those different philosophies and religions that I looked into. I think it has much more to do about the quiet and that's what's so beautiful about being here, because I, I live with a gorgeous view of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains and uh, in a place of absolute peace and quiet with the wind rustling through my aspen trees. And, um, you know, the, the sun greets me in the morning coming over, over those mountains um, and lights up the bedroom very, very early. And it's, it's just... it. It would be, it would be um, unfortunate if I were not to wake up every morning with a sense of gratitude for for everything I've had, including all of those complexities that were so painful in my life and the losses. You know everything, um, but it's. It is, yeah. You know, I'll say it again and again and again until you're, you're, you're going to shoot through this microphone and just strangle me. Um, peace, peace, contentment, quiet. Do you recognize that there was a moment that you, in your leaning in, that you let go? Um, that I let go... Um, you know, I, I, I honestly can't say I'm, I'm not sure. It's interesting. I, I, I wrote a poem. Um, I wrote it after, not long after Gary died, about a year. And then I updated it this past year. And the opening lines are, it's all about letting go and letting go and letting go. Those are the first lines of the poem, because I, th I think one is always dealing with letting go. I, I have been struggling for nine months since Max, my, my most wonderful dog of all my most wonderful animals, um, since Max died. And I have been struggling with letting go. It, it was a particularly difficult nine months. Several vets made egregious mistakes on him he would have been alive today if they hadn't uh, butchered things um and i've struggled with letting go letting go of my anger letting go of my rage letting go of my my uh, my un my feelings of unfairness which of course brings me to something that a wonderful woman that i knew who died a few years ago her name was marshall wallace 
she was an actress. She was on the Bob Newhart show. One of the funniest, most wonderful people you've ever met. I, I, I can't remember if I've already told you this story, but I used to say to Marsha, um, it's so unfair. It's just not fair. And Marsha would say to me, fair, Gary, you want fair? Go to Pomona. The fair's in Pomona. <laughs> you know? I she was great. She played the uh, the receptionist, right? Yes, yes, on the original Bob Newhart show. Such a great actress. So funny. Oh, she was an amazing woman. She she had a very difficult life, a lot of rough times, but she had the the most amazing sense of humor, and um, it was a great a great loss when she when she went and once again letting go and letting go and letting go. Suppose the hardest part about living on is how much loss you experience along the way, and yeah. how yeah. not to to put rocks in your pocket for every time somebody goes. But you, uh-huh. you're letting go of the idea of reincarnation must have been quite difficult too, because it takes away that hope that you might see someone again. Um. Yes, I think in a way it it, it wasn't. It wasn't really difficult letting go of it because the world and the books that I were reading, we talked about that, I think, uh, earlier or later or whatever, wherever I am, um, um, about Operation Paperclip. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard for me to justify reincarnation when when so many bad we we talked about we did this. we did but you yeah. know it, there's also a lot of great beauty yes yes there I, is i and would argue there's more beauty than sorrow it's just sorrow is louder you know horrible people their voices rise above the din there's a subtlety to love that is missed by a lot of people i think I, I won't argue with you. Um, and, and there's a part of me that uh, every once in a while I, I, I think about, you know, do I, would I like there to be in reincarnation? And, and I've always said, even when I believed in reincarnation, if there is reincarnation, I would hope there was some way not to have to go through high school again. <laughs> I would do anything to avoid high school. Amen to that. Uh, yes, and and it's one of the main reasons, besides all the other reasons, that I would like there not to be reincarnation because that's a, a particularly unfair period yes. in one's life. Um, yeah, but you know, I I don't know that the. A friend just said to me recently, when I, when I was going through the grief over Max's death, and and a very close friend has just lost his dog, and he's going through grief, and 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 uh, he said to me when I was struggling, he said, you know, the grief is cumulative. It's it's all the animals and all the family and all the friends, and you know. Going through AIDS was a, a, a war in a way. You know, we were losing friends like you would lose people in a war. Um, yeah, so it is, it's cumulative. And at the same time, it's necessary to have perspective 
and get it in perspective. And for me, I come back to it again. How many times have I now said this in this time that we've been talking? I think it's the grace of gratitude. It has to be. You know, you you have to appreciate the time. I, I've always said to friends, and I try to live by it myself, and it's easier to say it than to live by it. Um, whenever an animal has died, because they always die too early, you know, what do we have them for? Eight, 10, 12, if we're really lucky, 16 years. You know, I had one cat for 20 years. I had one dog for 20 years, but most of them didn't last nearly that long. And, and I've always said to other people, it's the contract we sign when we adopt them. We say, oh yes, okay, however many years, I'm signing on for this one. How short or however long, and it's never going to be long enough. But what you have to focus on is the time we have with them, not the time we're not going to get with them. That's the only way for me to survive it all, the time I have with them. The 34 years I had with Gary, not the 18 years since that I haven't gotten with him. The, the nine and a half years with Max that I thought were going to be 12 or 13 years because he was already several years old when I got him. But um, it's the time I had with him. I still feel the pain of the loss, but I have to, I have to think about the time I had and have gratitude for that time that reminds, oh. that reminds me of the dr seuss quote the uh don't it was about the uh, don't don't cry because it's over laugh because it happened oh i never heard that one i'm sure i'm I butchering it. it a little bit but it's it's basically that i love that yeah that's great yeah and you know you have to get through th- the grieving time when a lot of the dark things come up, you know, and, and there are, you know, there are two different kinds of grieving. There's the, the long grieving up front because the person is dying slowly over months, years, whether it's Alzheimer's or cancer. I have friends who've gone through cancer for 10, 15 years, you know, and you, and you do a lot of your grieving up front. It doesn't mean that you don't grieve after but you're doing a lot of the grieving up front. Or the shock, Gary died in the shower and was gone in an instant. And I got the call and it was like, oh, oh my God, I wasn't even there for the most important one in my life. I wasn't there. And then I had to do all the grieving after while dealing with the shock and the rage and the government. and all the other complexities. Even if you were in the house with him, you still wouldn't have been there, there. I mean, that's where the idea of agreements, and and I agree right. with you. It's like the, the long, uh, inexorable death that we're all going through. We're doing it now. Right. And the, the, the part of the trick is that the therapist I saw after Gary said, I had said to him, if only I had gone to Santa Fe that weekend, because I was working in L.A. and I was commuting. Um, If only I had gone that weekend. I could have gone that weekend, 
but I chose not to. I decided to go the next weekend. I should have gone that weekend. I would have gone that weekend if such and such hadn't happened. And he said to me, Gary, you're doing the if onlys, the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. They are of no use to you whatsoever. You know, that goes back to the T.S. Eliot poem. You know, what might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. That's it. That is it. So the if onlys, the shoulda, coulda, wouldas, you have to stop them in your mind. And wow, that is a challenge. Oh boy. We all want to go to the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. Uh, Yes, we do. Do you pray? Do I pray? I... I I don't I, I can't say that I pray in a formal way. I do some science of mind um, metaphysical treatment work, which I think we talked about acknowledging, you know, your oneness with the universe, with spirit, with God, with whatever you want to call it. Um, I I do that, and I have conversations with the dead constantly, you know, and I. In my darkest moments, in my deepest moments of sadness, uh, I reach out. I reach out to the dead, and I I ask for their help. It, it's you know I think it's just an innate part of us. I I know what I'm doing, and I say, why are you doing this? But I do it. It it does give me a level of comfort. So, you know, the complexity of the mind. You know, and in a way, I am praying uh, of some sort I guess there's a belief um, I believe it's a it's a I don't know if it's a specific tribe in in Africa but I know that it comes from the continent that that we in fact have two deaths we have the death where we take our last breath and then the second death happens when the last person on earth speaks our name ah yes I've heard that Beautiful, isn't it? It's the loveliest thing in the world. Right. But then what about what about the, the, the famous writers, the famous poets, the ones who, you know, have Shakespeare, then, then his name is spoken over and over, or, you know, the, the people we study in history books. They're the immortals, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And- but Sandra, do you, do you have a need for that? Do you find that you have a need? To be immortal? Yes, to be remembered. When I was younger, I think I did. I think that growing up, I wasn't allowed to have my voice on a, on a lot of levels. And I think I thought that if I, if my success meant my fame regardless of fortune, but my fame, that an immortality meant that my voice would be heard through the ages. And then as I got older and I understood myself and understood how to use my voice also and and stand up for my voice, um, I realized that immortality can is a feeling too it doesn't have to be like somebody doesn't have to say oh susan made me feel good today or susan made me think about things today because there's that feeling it's a resonance it's not a it's not a tangibility you know, does that make sense uh-huh. and so that part of me lives on and i don't need 
I don't require the notoriety of it. I think about it. I do. I think, what if I take my last breath and uh, no one speaks my name ever again? But I know that in this lifetime, I have done, I have done things on the side of love, and that the the flowers that I have watered with that will grow and they will beget more love and they will beget more love. And in its own way, that's the immortality. Right. It's a thread. Right. Yeah. When I was young, uh, I loved the poem. And, and who was the writer? Uh, was it um, Was it Lord Byron? Uh, I can never pronounce, remember the pronunciation, Ozymandias or Ozymandias. It's... it's um, uh, he was a great king, and you come upon the, you know, the uh, something that he built, and it's nothing but dust and sand. And he says, "Look, look on my works and despair." You know, he was to be remembered for the ages, and that's all that's left—nothing. Um, well, it's a bit of the emperor's new clothes, isn't it? That, it, it? Because what good is it if you're immortal? Does Shakespeare? I mean, I suppose it depends on your belief system. I personally believe in reincarnation, and I also believe that everything is connected, and I think that our DNA is alive with every action of our ancestors, and I think that everything I do ripples out in in a way or another. That being said, is Shakespeare somewhere in the ether excited that, you know, Tom Hiddleston is about to do that performance next week? You know what I mean? It is, it's, does Shakespeare care? Whatever Shakespeare is now, did he come back in a reincarnation of a plumber in New Jersey to experience that life? And maybe he picked up a book by Shakespeare and he's not going to remember he was Shakespeare. Right. So what's, what does it all matter? It's, it's, a, it's, it's, that kind, yeah. it's a thought well, experiment for sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. Does my uh, ego here on earth in this present moment, would I love to be a famous painter or a famous uh, performer or, you know, this or anything? I mean, the ego of me would be like, yeah, that'd be cool. Right. But but if I die and it doesn't happen, I still think I've lived a good life. Right. Yeah, well, then we get into the whole ego issue. And that is that is a whole other trip. And, um, yeah. It's, it's a dance. And again, introspective and, and it's, it's the best part of being a human is thinking about all this stuff, I think. Yes. That and sex. <laughs> if I remember correctly. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. And, and it, I, it wasn't Lord Byron. It was Percy Shelley. Oh, well, they yeah. were best buds. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Just to get it straight. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. And, and you, you know, obviously, I'm sure you've had discussions on this podcast with other people about the ego, because that that is just that's the biggest, you know, that is the issue. And then the question of uh, how much is is this real? What what is reality? Who knows? How, what is is it all just individual perception? You know, so then you go down that road. This is what's so great about being alive, you know, and, and w- when you're fortunate enough to have the time and the energy to spend all the time and the energy thinking about, oh, yes, what is reality? What? How much of this is an illusion? A lot of it, I think. 
that a lot of it's our ego playing tricks on us. I think about yes. it too. Uh, a lot of immortal people were right assholes too. Right. Well, so much of the Course in Miracles, which you and I talked about, that, that I, I studied for a number of years, that is about the ego. And, yeah. And I'm not without an ego, God knows, but uh, I don't know. I, and then maybe, again, being remembered for being a good person, but when the last person speaks my name, am I truly dead? I don't know. Gary, this has been a delight and I can't wait to meet you in real life, having spent many hours now over yes. electronic devices. Well, you will come out to visit me, or I will see you in Los Angeles. Absolutely. If people want to find you, are you anywhere findable? Or do you do you, do you maintain any kind of social media presence or anything like that? Um, oh, yeah, well, I'm really backwards with all of this. Um, I am on Facebook, but I, I hardly ever go on. Yeah. I go on when I feel like I have something important to say, which probably isn't that important to begin with. But I go on to just express something. So I think I've been on like three times in the last year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, somebody can find me through that, I guess. Yeah, and I'll put links on HeyHumanPodcast.com. I would love, if you would be so kind, to get from you a reading list of some of the books that you've been discussing and I think people would be really interested in checking out. So I will, obviously I'll go through this and write stuff down, but if there's other stuff that you haven't mentioned that you think lumps in with what we've talked about, I would love to get that from you. Well, I, the one I'll say that I read and I'm actually rereading and I hardly ever reread a book is Sapiens. That's a great book. Yeah. History of Humankind. Yeah. I'm, I think that book is an incredible. It's a great book. Uh, Have you read Homo Deus? No, I haven't read that yet, and I haven't read 21-something for the new century, his last book. Yeah, I didn't read that one yet. Uh, but uh, I want to read both of those books. And and the other thing is ah, the Four Quartets and all the, all the great poets. I think there is so much to be gathered, from, you know, gained from reading them. Yeah. But, um, I, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a few uh, other books. The Freedom from the Known, I think, is very oh, worth So good. I'll definitely put that on the links page. And, Gary, regardless, whether there is or is not reincarnation, I do hope that you and I will meet in the Rose Garden. I do. That's wonderful. I hope so, too. <laughs> yeah. Have a wonderful night. Thank you for Thank all you. your time. I really appreciate you, it. You, too. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye.